0: Welcome to the First Church Message of the Week podcast, thanks for listening in. The mystery of the Incarnation focuses on the implications of the notion that God enter into the human experience in the person of Jesus, laying aside the glories of heaven and dwelling in a fallen and failing world. Often Christians fail to see the beauty of it. We've heard our whole lives that Jesus is God with us, but we don't see what makes that belief so beautiful and transformative. In this week's message of the week, we hear from guest speaker, Reverend Dr. Joel Allen. He shares from Philippians 2 and reminds us of the implications of God incarnate, God in the flesh, God in a bod. Here is the First Church message of the week.
1: Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. I've enjoyed getting to know many of you and uh, and I've enjoyed the time that I've had to spend here at uh, First Church in Watertown so far. So it's a privilege for me to be here. I'm very excited and happy that I'm able to uh, fill in for Jen for a few weeks. And uh, so... It, and Bryce uh, is one of my favorite of all time students. I just really enjoyed having Bryce as a student. Truly did. In fact, I was just remembering. Uh, I, I can still remember some of the research projects he did. Like he did that thing on the theology of worship choruses. Remember that? And then, and then comparing the Hulk to Samson. You did a research. So I think that was. So, yeah, I mean, Bryce was always willing to take a fresh look at things, right? And I appreciated that about Bryce. I remember one time that we had a uh, project where we matched students up in a specific class to each one of them were matched to a, a senior adult at Wesley Acres, a senior adult living center right next to the campus. <coughs> and so, and um so I bring this, all the students over and that match them up. And, and then they, they met several times during the semester with their senior adult partner and they were to kind of learn their life and kind of glean wisdom from their life and write a little project on the wisdom of the ages from their experience with that person. And, uh, the, so the first day that we brought the students together and matched them up, they were just kind of getting acquainted. The, uh, the woman that Bryce was matched to really started pouring out her soul to him. She just was felt so comfortable with Bryce, and she was really dealing with some pretty severe you know, uh, emotional difficulties. And a little later, I glanced over, and I, Bryce was holding her hand and pra- having a prayer with her. That's the only time I ever saw a student have a prayer with one of the people that they were matched to. And uh, I thought, this guy is definitely called to the ministry. There's no clearer sign than that. So, uh, so, in that, so, I'm not surprised at all to you know hear seven years later to find Bryce having graduated from Dakota Westland, going on to uh, uh, Perkins School of Theology, and done had such a great time down there. Those. Uh, three years, I guess you're down there and then now serving a church here in the, in the, uh, Dakotas Conference. It's, uh, very gratifying to me to see Bryce uh, doing so well and so well liked here. As I've heard you speak about Bryce, I can see that you really like him a lot and he's been a great addition to your, uh, your leadership team. I want to talk to you about uh, one of the basic doctrines of Christian faith that uh, I think we often don't fully appreciate. It's one of those things that we've heard about many, many times, but, you know, things that are very familiar to you are easy to just not see. When you're, you know, when you, you drive down a certain route every day, you don't notice it anymore because it's just part of the background. <clears throat> and I think that this often happens with this doctrine. The doctrine is the, I, the doctrine of the incarnation of God in Christ. The simple idea complicated but simple, that Jesus is the incarnation of God into our world, that God laid aside in some mysterious way the glory of heaven and took on human form. The Apostle Paul uses a word uh, to, to emptied himself in Philippians 2. He emptied himself and took on human form, even to the point of death on a cross. So I want to talk to you about that because I feel like sometimes we lose the sense for what an important idea that is to our Christian faith and how um, how easy it is to kind of lose that uh, uh, appreciation for it. So uh, the, the passage uh, where Paul talks about this perhaps more clearly than any other passage is in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 1 through 11. <clears throat> but I want to point out before I even read it, That starting at verse six, uh, when you hear the words, uh, he though he existed in the form of God, it turns into poetry. In other words, what Paul has done here is taken a poem that was already being used in the early church and drawn it into his letter, which makes this very important because this, so Paul wrote this probably in 55 AD, and and he's, and he's quoting a hymn. In other words, this section, and if you, I could show you on my sheet, coming to me afterwards, the service, I'll, it's laid out in poetic form. And the reason it is, is because scholars have recognized, oh, the Greek here actually has rhythm. Poetry in the ancient world was based on rhythm, not rhyme. In other words, it was like bum ba da bum bada bum bada bum. You know, it was that kind of the 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 words had a rhythm about them. And so they've so the importance of that is that when Paul quotes this, he's quoting something that they know already. It's like as if I if I said to you, um, As we all know, Jesus gives us such great assurance. As we all know, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Preachers use, you know. But you know when you hear that, I didn't just make that up right? I'm quoting a very famous old hymn, Blessed Assurance. When I do that, it's a famous old hymn. And so I'm quoting that. So if you heard that hymn growing up, you know that I didn't just make that up. I'm quoting the famous hymn. That's what Paul is doing here. He's quoting the famous hymn. And what's important about that is it shows us that this is way earlier even than when Paul wrote it in 55 AD. This is what the earliest Christians said when they came to to worship and what did they say they celebrated the fact that God laid aside the glory of heaven and came into this world and took on a human body that was central to their faith in other words we only have several of these poems that were used or hymns these are poetry sung it was probably a song that they sang and we only have a few of them and all of almost all of them deal with this topic so it means in early Christianity, this was like hugely important the belief that Jesus is God in human flesh. So, and I will give you a clue when I read this where the poetry begins. If you want to check, your Pew Bible almost certainly lays it out in poetry too. If you want to just pull it out and check to see if it's laid out. I I was going to check for the service and I forgot to. But I'll bet your Pew Bible, most translations lay it out in poetic form just so you know it's poetry. So it would be Philippians chapter 2 beginning at verse 6. Check me out on this. See if it's in poetry in your Pew Bible. I'd be real curious to know. So Philippians chapter 2 verse uh, 1 through 11. If then there is any comfort in Christ any consolation from love any participation in the spirit any tender affection and sympathy make my joy complete be of the same mind having the same love being of full accord and of one mind do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit but in humility regard others as more be- as better than yourself let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, and here the poetry begins, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, Assuming human likeness and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, even more highly, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, uh, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that... Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So at the end of this poem that Paul is quoting, that they would have known, so at the end of the poem, in the poem, they confess, they make a confession that would have been the early one of the earliest Christians, kind of a summary of Christian faith, and that is that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, when people in the early Christianity times were wanting to find out, hey, this group of people is growing. We've never heard of them before. They call themselves Christians. It's a brand new religion. What is this all about? So if you went and visited this church and said, hey, what is this all about? I see you guys are gathering together, and I know you have something to do with a Jewish teacher. What is this all about? You would say, what? so if someone said, well, what do we really believe? We, The basic thing we believe is that Jesus Christ is Lord. It was like a way to summarize your faith. And what did they mean by that? They meant that they believe that the human Jesus, the guy that you would bump into, Jesus of Nazareth, the human person, that that human person is the Christ, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, so they believed that the human Jesus that was born in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem from, grew up in Nazareth, that that guy that was a carpenter and grew up with his brothers and his family, and Mary, son of Mary and Joseph, that human guy was the promised Messiah that's promised in the Old Testament. So when you read the promises of the Old Testament of the coming Messiah, that Jesus fulfilled those. So when you say Jesus is the Christ, you're saying he's the Messiah. It's the same word. And that he's Lord. And when they said Lord, they didn't just mean like, you know, in the old British, like, yes, my Lord. You know, they didn't mean that like mass, you know, boss or something. They didn't mean it that way. They meant that the Jesus, that human guy is the promised Messiah. And he's also God in human flesh. That's what they meant. They meant God in human flesh. It's what fits the context, because right here, when the poetry begins, there. what are they talking about? About Jesus, though he existed equal with God, did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but he gave it up and took on the form of our human likeness, and even to the point of being a slave, even to the point of death on a cross. So they're celebrating this new recognition. And it was not really, you know, it's not like Jewish people believed that the Messiah was going to be God in human flesh. They didn't. They believed the Messiah was going to be just like a great king or a great monarch or a great warrior or military leader. So this was like Christian revelation. And even today, when you think about it, all Christians believe this. Like, do Greek Orthodox believe that Jesus is God in human flesh? Absolutely. Do Ukrainian Orthodox believe this? Absolutely. Do Roman Catholics believe this? Yes, they do. Do Pentecostals believe this? Absolutely. Do Lutherans believe it? Yes, they do. Do Methodists believe it? We certainly do. You can check our doctrines and statements of belief. We definitely believe it. All Christian groups believe it. Do Jewish people believe it? No. Do Muslims believe it? No. They do not believe it. So this is a basic fundamental Christian belief. And, um, and that when I, many years ago, uh, when I was, I had the privilege of studying at a Jewish school and one of my professors was named, I shouldn't say that. One of the professors there who actually was deceased before I started studying there, but I heard other students say this and I confirmed it on numerous levels that he would regularly say, so this is a Jewish professor in a Jewish school training people to be rabbis, he would regularly say that he believed that the Christian doctrine of the incarnation of God in Christ was the most fascinating and beautiful concept in all religion. A Jewish professor. And the rabbinical students kind of got, were, 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 drive them crazy. They're like, Dr. Bricto, we're studying the Talmud here. And there are massive amounts of literature in the Talmud. It's like an encyclopedia. And there's full of beautiful ideas. Certainly there's something as beautiful as that idea that Christians have. And Dr. uh, Bricktoe would say, I don't know of anything more beautiful than this. And he'd say, don't get me wrong, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe that Jesus actually was God in human flesh. I just believe that the idea of it is a beautiful idea. And it drove the rabbinical students crazy. And yet, what's so fascinating is, what fascinated me about this is, it really made me think to myself, you know, I don't think most Christians believe it, because we're taught it, and we hear, hear about it all the time. The children's sermon today dealt with the topic. But we don't really see it as beautiful. We don't see it as like, oh, that's such a beautiful idea. We kind of believe it technically because we've heard it all the time. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in human flesh. We celebrate it at Christmas time. Really, Christmas is a holiday celebrating the incarnation. In fact, this sermon you could think of as Christmas in July because we're talking about a Christmas topic. So the Jewish this Jewish professor believed it was beautiful. And to be honest, he talked about this all the time. I had one of my professors that had him in a class. Remember, he died before I got the start of the program. He had just died. So this professor of mine at Asbury's name was Bill Arnold. You could look him up and he would confirm this, that Brickto, Dr. Bricto, talked about this, not just now and then. He, he was fascinated with this idea and talked about it a lot. And he would have to tell his students, I don't actually believe it. It's just beautiful. What's interesting is most Christians don't find it beautiful. We just believe it. And so my goal for this sermon is that by the time you walk out the door, I want you to see it's, that it's beautiful too. We don't just believe it. We get both the best of both worlds. We can believe it and be taken by its beauty. So there are three points, three quick points I want to make about the doctrine of the Incarnation. The first one is it tells us something about God. The second is it tells us something about ourselves, humans. And the third, it tells us something about uh, Christian fellowship together. So the first is it tells us something about God. It tells us that God is self-giving love. That's exactly what he says. Didn't con- He didn't consider this equality with God as something to be grasped, but he gave it up, taking on human likeness, even to the point of death on a cross. It tells us that God, by nature, is self-giving in love. And there's a great way to kind of get at this. Um, a number of years ago, 20-ish, I uh, I had the opportunity to speak in a mosque. Um, I So there are not a lot of preachers you've had before that have preached in a mosque, but I've had this extraordinary experience. It was on the first anniversary of 9-11. I had gotten to know some of the Muslim leaders in the town where I lived. It was Somerset, Kentucky. And there were some very important surgeons in our hospital that were Muslim. And there were very wealthy, very effective surgeons. I'd hear people in my congregation talking about Dr. El El-Kalina and Dr. El Nagar. And there was another whose name I can't remember. And then there was a psychiatrist too, who I knew a little bit because he brought his children to the daycare that was in our church. And so I got to know him because he was in and out every day picking up his kids. And they were uh, and they were horrified by the events of 9/11 absolutely crushed and devastated by those events and kind of frightened of retribution as happened in many cases we had a, a synagogue there in Somerset and uh, so I'd gotten to know them a bit and uh, expressed concern for them we even had them speak in our church on an occasion just so that we could learn more about Islam and then on the first anniversary of 9/11 they invited me to speak in their mosque and so I prepared some words. I hardly remember what I said. And uh, then in the basement of this, after that anniversary of nine first first anniversary of 9-11 event, we're in the basement. So I'm down there with Dr. Nagar and El Kalini and the other doctor whose name I can't remember and the psychiatrist whose name I can't remember and um, chatting with them. And one of them turned to me and he said, Joel, do you really believe that stuff Christians are said to believe that Jesus is like, God in human body, and I said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm. a Christian. I believe that." And he said, "Oh, oh!" He was like so disappointed. It's like Muslims just can't. We could never believe that. And I said, "Why is that?" And he said, "Because Allah to us is just too magnificent. He's too grand. He's too holy and 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 uh, sovereign to." Come into this world and take on a human body. It would, it would sully. It would dirty up. It would, it would be filthy for Allah to do something. Allah is too glorious for that. And I remembered a way of explaining it that I had heard years before. I don't really even remember where I learned this story, a parable. It's a parable to tell to explain this to a Muslim. I had heard it years before, and it just kind of came to me, shockingly. Uh, and so I'll bet it was eight to ten years before this experience in the mosque where I had heard this story, and it popped into my head. I was glad to have it. And so I said, well, let me tell you this parable to explain the way Christians see this. I said, imagine that there are two kings of just magnificent splendor. They live in palaces of great glory and just unending beauty and wealth. And one of these two kings refuses to go near the peasants that live outside of his palace because they're too filthy and dirty, and he doesn't want anything to do with them. So when he needs to go somewhere, he gets into a beautiful gilded chariot and flies to the streets. But he doesn't go and spend time with the dirty people that live outside of his palace. The other king does the exact opposite then actually dresses to look exactly like a peasant and goes and lives with the peasants and actually lives with them so that he can teach them how they can be prepared to come and live in the palace with the king. Now, which of those two would be the greater monarch? And it was so interesting. They they looked at me, they got the point, and then they went and started talking about something else. It was like they were not going to answer that question. And interestingly, one of my other students, a guy named Andrew Devaney, was in Africa once. He told me this story that he shared. He heard me tell this story that I just told you. I've told it many, many times. Uh, and he was in Africa, and there was a group of Muslims he was talking with. And, and he said, hey, let me share you this idea, and started sharing with these Muslims this parable. And he said that they kind of got into an argument with each other where several of them were like, oh, the king that went and lived with the peasants. That would be the greater king. And the other one goes, you can't say that. You can't say that. We're Muslims, right? We, we don't believe that. So it really does. It's, it, it The story illustrates the way Christians think about the incarnation. The incarnation is God taking on human flesh. It doesn't dirty God's character, it speaks more highly of God's character. God is self-giving love, not just magnificent splendor. God is self-giving love. God was willing not only to take on the clothing of a peasant and live with us in this dirty world, but to even die on a cross, the most horrific death imaginable. So, that's the first point that God, this, this illustrates that God is self-giving love and the nature of God. We can see the nature of God here more clearly than in any other event in the, our walk with God. So that's, it tells us something about the nature of God, just as the scripture here has done. The second thing it does is it tells us about something about the nature of, of our, our human nature, about the, the nature of our human existence. And what it does is it tells us that we're of extreme value to God, right? You you don't sacrifice for something you don't care for. Uh, Let me illustrate that again with a parable. So imagine that you're in a community where there's a nice like, walking circle, and you walk this route all the time just to get some exercise at the end of the day. It's like, let's go for a walk. And you have a route and you've done it many times. And there's an old shed along the route and the shed is like filled with like an old gardening tools and a broken down lawnmower. It's not very much of any value. And so you're walking by one day and you notice that somehow there's a little fire that's broken out. Who knows how it got started. And so, but you also know that the shed is not worth much and there's nothing of any value in there. So you just kind of like, meh, it's no big deal. Call the fire department to let them know, but you're not going to do anything really, because it's not any danger. It just needs to burn down. So uh, so you may not, you're going to call the fire department, but you're not going to really worry too much about it because you know what's in there and it was junk and the shed was junk. So you treat it that way. Now, if you were had been walking by and you noticed that your neighbor got an old 57 Chevy and it was in there and he had been working on it with his son and grandson and it was they were having a lot of fun fixing up this old car, uh, that would be different. Right. So because, you know, there's something valuable in there and, you know, your neighbor and, you know, he cares about it. So you would take it more seriously and you might rush up there and try to stamp that fire. out. Right. You're going to you're going to take it more seriously because it's valuable. Now, if your neighbor's son was in that shed, things are starting to change. Right. Now you're going to rush in that shed and try to save that person. If it was your child in the shed. Everything changes. You are willing to sacrifice yourself and get yourself burned to get your child out of that shed. You will move heaven and earth to get your child out of that shed. And so your willingness to sacrifice says something about how you you deem the value of what you're sacrificing for. You're not going to sacrifice for, you're not going to burn yourself trying to put out a fire if it's just junk in an old shed. But you will do that if it's your child you're trying to save in that shed. And so that that's more powerful uh, evidence of how you estimate the value of something than anything could possibly be. And in this passage, we hear of God's willingness to take on human flesh, even to the point of death on a cross. That says something powerful about who we are and how God esteems our value. It says that each person you meet is esteemed in highest regard by God just for their humanity. That God considers you and myself to be extremely important and extremely valuable. And nothing could express that more than God's willingness to sacrifice God his own body. So it tells us something important about God, it tells us something important about ourselves, but it also tells us something very important about Christian fellowship. And that is that we are, he says here, right? at this, Have this same mind that was in you. In other words, don't be so stuck on yourself. Be self-giving as Jesus was, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So in other words, what he's saying here is, You are not just to know that God is self-giving love and that other people are important. You are supposed to be willing to take this mind that you consider other people as extremely valuable. That's the point Paul is making. Don't jockey around for authority and for esteem, but... But give your own life away as Jesus did. Jesus is your model for how you treat other people. That in the same way that God gave up his own uh, godness to uh, to reach out to us in love and to offer us the, uh, the pathway of salvation and grace... That in the same way you are to treat other people in a self-giving way. That you should consider the good of others as something you're willing to sacrifice for. And so Paul is calling on all Christians to be willing to sacrifice themselves using Jesus as a model for what Christian fellowship is all about. And I think that's a transformative idea. So those are the three ideas I want to share with you. That this, this passage tells us something powerful about God's nature. It tells us something powerful about human value. And it tells us something powerful about the way that we treat people that are around us. And I, I my goal is, and my desire is, and maybe my homework project is, that when you leave today, you spend time pondering this idea. In early Christianity, this went to the very core of what Christianity was about. It was about this new belief, and it was new. Jewish people didn't believe it pre-Christ, and they still don't believe it today if they're not converted. If they do, they're no longer regular Jews. They're now Jewish Christians, right? This is something that that is uh, is a part of Christian faith uniquely Christian and only Christians believe it, and so um, so my calling for you today, or my challenge for you today, it's for you to spend time thinking about this and and finding in your heart a way to see, like Dr. Bricto saw, that there's something not just that we believe technically because we learned it in catechism class, but something to stir our soul, something beautiful, something that would move your heart to love God and to love others more fully than you've ever done before. This is the pathway for that kind of life. And so my challenge for you today is to find it, to find that um, the ability to see this for the beauty that is truly involved in this great belief. So let's close in a prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we've been able to share together. And I do pray that just the way early Christians really emphasize this concept of Jesus being God in human flesh and sacrificing uh, himself for us and the glory of the cross would really stir our hearts and motivate us. I pray for that same kind of, of depth of Christian passion. In Jesus'
0: name, I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the First Church Message of the Week. To stay connected, subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Facebook. For more information like our church calendar, worship times, and upcoming events, visit our website at watertownfirst.church. This has been the First Church Message of the Week.